You are listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia. Today we are in Tortona. Buonasera, il barone, the, bri- the Brian, the Baron, former Team Sky press officer, current America cycling podcaster. Office. Yes, um, I'm not going to read off your whole palmarès. Thank you, Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you, Daniel? I'm doing fine, Brian. We're in a significant location, not the kebab shop. We're sitting outside. This is not the usual cycling podcast. Uh, recording venue today. We're not sitting on a sun-kissed terrace with our lovely Aperol Can I just uh, interject? Or Prosecco gone. I met two photographers in the press room yesterday and they had a rule of thumb. If they went to a restaurant and they saw anyone from the cycling podcast, they knew they were they were they ended up at the right place for dinner. We've in the past had similar rules of thumb pertaining to people like Patrick Lefebvre. But Brian, the 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 centerpiece, the key point about where we're sitting is not the kebab shop. No, we actually had the, ho- the ambulance just passed us. We were at the hospital. And not just any hospital. No. We're in Tortona. Why is this hospital significant in cycling history? Because this was here, Fausto Coppi, il campionissimo, drew his last breath when he died in 1960. 60. On Saturday, the 2nd of January, 1960, Fausto Coppi, il campionissimo, as you said, he perished here. And, well, we've been reading a little bit about this, um, about events uh, in on those first days of 1960. Um, Fausto Coppi had been on a sort of hunting and racing. He'd also... Uh, raced in Africa about um, well, come back, but about a month before that it was the uh, Amstel Curacao of the time. Yes, it was. He came back feeling pretty unwell, but tried to sort of reassure nearest and dearest, including his partner, the the Dama Bianca, the white lady Giulia Occhini, and who even said things like, "If it wasn't for her, I'd be going out on my bike." But then this sort of viral, well, this. Um, a chest infection. It seemed Mysterious like a chest disease. You sent yeah. me um, the front page of the paper the day after he died, and they referred to it as a, a, a rather mysterious pulmonary disease. Yes, and it deteriorated, and eventually, on the first of January, he started having well, he was having serious spasms and chest pains, and was rushed to hospital. This was the hospital that they chose to take him to, and he was in Novi Ligure. At the Villa Coppi, that's about 30 kilometers away, and uh, Tortona was the most obvious place for him to come. Um, it wasn't a particularly advanced hospital at the time. There was some debate about whether he, if he'd gone to, for example, Turin, or he might have been saved. But the thing that struck me most was this kind of. Um, well, uh, I suppose it was tabloid fodder at the time, and we're all familiar with the story, or uh, somewhat familiar with the story of the white lady um, who he'd been having an affair with for several years. And on the night when he did die, both his wife, Bruna, who he'd been separated from, he'd been estranged from for five years, and the Dama Bianca, they were both in the hospital behind us in separate rooms. The Dama Bianca was sort of having a a panic attack and fainting and having to be treated and um, and meanwhile yeah, Bruna she'd been down on the Ligurian coast where we sort of came up from today and the message was sent to her she was with Copi's da- daughter Martina the message was sent to her that she 
had better come up to Tortona because things were not looking good. So it's a, a very significant location in the history of Italian cycling, really. Um, Tortona, significant as well, was the birthplace for Luigi Malabrocca, a contemporary of Fausto Coppi, the famous black jersey, the, uh, this rider in the late 1940s, who made it a point of pride to finish last in the Giro d'Italia and to wear the black jersey. Wear the black jersey, and this became very lucrative for him. He was sort of invited to criterium. He, um, he was... He was I could see myself in that. I can yes, identify with this. I mean, he would... There, there are all sorts of stories, many of them, I think, exaggerated, embellished, about the kind of thing he would get up to to make sure that he... He would hide behind the, trees and everything. Yeah, hide in barns, uh, in sort of hay bales, have picnics, and, um, you know, stop at restaurants and so forth and so on. And, um, well, he finally decided to give that up when he lost his duel for the white jersey in 1949 against uh, a rider called Sante Carolo. And at that time, Malabrocca took things too far and he got to the finish in Milan so late that the timekeepers had gone home and they'd assumed that, well, um, he'd got lost somewhere on the route and they awarded the black jersey. Oh, just, just, he was just too ambitious. Sante Carolo. And thereafter, um, Luigi Malabrocca turned thoughts and ambitions to other things. But Brian, it's been a dramatic day on the Giro d'Italia. Um, we've lost one of the main contenders for the Giro d'Italia. You're going to tell us about all of that and who won the stage in the tale of the Tapa. It's time for the tale of the Tapa. Thank you, Daniel. So stage 11 from Camaiore in Tuscany to Tortona, where we are now in Piemonte. 219 kilometers, Daniel. A long one again. First along the coast and up into the north uh, of Genova and east of Alessandria. Four riders attacked early and they were joined by two others and they together got to create the breakaway of stage 11. The riders were Thomas Champion of Cofidis, Pablo Sevilla of Eolo Cometa, Filippo Maglia of Green Project Badiani, Lawrence Rex of Wanti, Alexander Konishev and Vaiko Stoinic of Cortex Alitalia. The stage looked relatively quiet and potentially somewhat predictable in the arm wrestle, wrestle between the breakaway and the peloton, but then a crash turned not just the stage but the Giro upside down once more. With six kilometers to go on the descent from the Colla di Boasi, a crash involving five riders in the heart of the peloton, you'd say. Um, and it was one of those show-stopping moments, really, uh, in, a, in a bad way, because everyone held their breath, because it kind of looked like the Ineos team collectively had fallen in a, in a slippery corner but there were other riders as well including Primus Roglic and Alessandro Kovi of UAE. The riders who crashed were Tau Gegenhardt, Primus Roglic, Garen Thomas, Kovi, Pavel Sivikov and then shortly after because I'm bringing him into the mix as well Oscar Rodriguez who we actually saw his sports director just pass uh, Max into the hotel yeah, into the hotel, into the hotel, hospital, the hospital. Right, where we're sitting <coughs> Garen Thomas was quite fast back up again and so was Roglic once he got a bike from a teammate but the situation was a lot more severe for especially Taugegen Hart and Oscar Rodriguez. Both had to exit the race and it did look quite alarming as we saw Gegenhardt uh, being carried into an ambulance. Paul Sivakov who was also involved in that crash. Uh, he had to fight his way back. Uh, uh, he had waited for um, for Taugegen Hart so, but uh, once he was out of the race he'd waited uh, in vain so he had to finish alone and very far from the peloton he must have had a very also very a bit hard bashed up day. himself i think yeah so and thus obviously dropping out of gc and finishing very very uh, late after the, 
the main part of the race. The came in, Brian, you were probably going to tell us this, but he came in 13 minutes, 56 seconds down. He lost 15 places on general classification. He's now 23rd. Yeah. The race felt somewhat stunted after these crashes, but eventually the work to catch the breakaway continued. Jake Waula up the tempo and uh, reducing the gap significantly, also putting some of, uh, yeah, for them, Michael Matthews' um, rivals in the sprint in a, in a spot of bother. The breakaway started to disintegrate as their collaboration had ended by then, but two riders stayed out there. It was uh, Lawrence Rex and Vico Stoinich. Uh, Rex eventually went off on his own in a quite heroic effort for the stage win. With five kilometers to go, it was over for him after 214 kilometers in the breakaway on this stage. Small attack, TV attack, you could call it from Quarterman, the British rider. Uh, but after that, the sprint was inevitable. Another crash split the group. And reducing that, uh, the potential stage winner to a very select one, the sprint was like a long drag race to the finish with Mats Peterson opening a very long sprint. He had Cavendish glued to his wheel, but on their left side, Pascal Ackermann ended up edging all of them out for the win with Jonathan Milan on the right-hand side taking second. This was Pascal Ackermann's third stage winner in the Giro. And there we are, Daniel. That was the tail of the tapa. A lot of uh, elevatoring in the, um, in the GC because of the... Um, so Gegenhardt um, being out so now, the top three is Garen Thomas, Primus Roglic, Joao Almeida and Andreas Lechnerson in fourth, still in contention, he's only 22 seconds down from that pink jersey that he wore so brilliantly initially in the race. Best Italian I think we should mention, still Damiano Caruso, Brian Victorious, he is 1 minute 28 after Garen Thomas. Brian, one of the most baffling things about the finish, the sprint finish for me today, was how confident Pascal Ackerman was after the finish line. It's crazy, I mean it would look like a photo finish. Yet he, yet he raised he his He won arms. by a sheet of lasagna, a tagliatella. Uh, tagliatella, uh, I think, the Italian col culinary canons suggest they have to be seven millimeters wide tagliatella. Wasn't much more it was it's, roughly it's, that, it's wasn't uh, it? It's fascinating how they still, they still know they won. I mean, very rarely, when usually when people you know celebrate too early, it's because someone pips them from behind. But with Ackerman today, he was, he was certain and... He was right. Brian, let's hear from someone who was pretty instrumental in Pastor Ackerman's victory. His lead-out man, Ryan Gibbons, a South African rider, UAE team Emirates rider, who took him pretty expertly, was certainly led into the final corner with about 500 metres to go. Well, there were a few of those sort of like slight corners, S-curves coming into the finish, and yeah, luckily no, no crashes there at least. Let's hear from Gibbons, and let's also hear from Rod Ellingworth, a familiar voice to most of our listeners on the podcast. He is, if he's not the head honcho, he's pretty close to that. At he's number two. He's very much, um, yeah, he's number two. Let's hear from him from a sort of somber Ineos team bus, as you can imagine, after Theo Gegenhart crashed out earlier in the day. Um, well, fantastic lead out. Um, just tell us what was the what was the plan? We knew it was going to be fast, slightly downhill. I think. What was the plan with the lead out? Yeah, I mean, well, <coughs> with a squad we have here, you know, we've got quite a GC built, uh, GC heavy squad. So it's only really myself and him. And unfortunately, you know, the few sprint opportunities we've had thus far in the Giro, I've kind of been on on GC duty. So he's re really been alone. But uh, we've seen how strong he is. So today, kind of, we went all in for him. Um, we knew with that corner it was really important to be in the corner first, um, so I kind of I did that, moved him up a little bit and kind of slowed down the, little, the pace a little bit into the corner. And yeah, he, he, I mean, showed that he's strong and just so happy that he could get the win, albeit by the smallest of margins. Uh, he's a sprinter that's been climbing really well the last couple of years and 
at times we've sort of wondered whether you know he's lost his knack as a sprinter to become more of an all-round rider. I mean, just from inside the team, what's he been sort of saying about his sprinting feeling? Do you think? I mean, he's he's definitely, as you say, he's definitely climbing really, really well, and I think he's definitely one of the better climbers compared to all the rest of the sprinters. Um, he has said that over the years, you know, not that he has lost his, his edge, but he's kind of, you know, sprints are getting very, very dangerous and, and nerve-wracking, so he prefers it when it's a little bit of a, a bit of a harder finish. Um, but today was a pure sprint, and yeah, he, he's clearly still still pretty quick. And just last thing, he was incredibly confident when he came over the line. I don't know why he was so confident because no one else was. Um, he was convinced, wasn't he? He was. I think you know someone like him who's got as many wins as he does. Uh, I think he's got a, a fair idea of when he's won or not. And uh, yeah, I mean, if he was confident, I'd I'd believe in him even before seeing the photo. But fortunate enough, uh, the fo- the photo proves that he's got the win too. Well, Rod, obviously, understandably, pretty sombre mood around the bus, and also quite a concerned move because Pavel Sivakov hasn't come in yet. But um, yeah, just sum it up. Um, How do you feel to see? A guy who's riding so well, like Teo, crash out the race so suddenly. Yeah, I, I think you know you just got to think about Teo really because it's a bit of a strange day when you've got the guys up on GC and we still got Goant who's leading. So you know, for, in a way, um, Goant went down, but you know, thank God both of them weren't out, which could easily have been. It looked like just quite a simple crash in a way, didn't it? But certainly, um, you know, it looked like Teo did fall quite heavy. You know, he just sort of bike went up from underneath him, didn't he, and fell heavy, but. Yeah, he's just you know it's disappointing, of course, and and uh, um, I think certainly for Teo because he was in the form of his life, and I think was really looking forward to it. He's been in great mood. Um, the boys have raced really well, but I think you know just straight away the guys were straight on it. You know the other lads got around G, they've rallied around each other. Um, so yeah, just got to look forward, don't you, and just see see what happens. I mean, we haven't heard yet from Teo. We don't know his situation, so. I believe he's well. He's been taken to hospital, hasn't he? Somewhere yes. close to the course where he crashed. Yeah, he's in Geneva, so we're, we're not sure. Uh, just waiting for the, the doctors with him. Our doctors with him, so uh, we, we shall see. But yeah, Pavel's still to finish. I think he just fell on the same side that he did yesterday. So I think he's, you know, just a bit of a bit of a knock and took him a little while to get going again. But you know, we'll see. I mean, fair play to the other lads. You know, they're they're obviously disappointed, but you know the. I think that straight away they was, but we looked after G well and so forth. And then G nearly fell in the final there, didn't he? You know, they hit him, I think, from behind. So phew, this Giro's certainly throwing, throwing a few things at us. Yeah. Somebody said to me the other day, I haven't had any, I'm 50, I haven't got any grey hairs. I will have by the end of this race, I tell you, yeah. And, well, we spoke to Teo on Monday on the rest day about, you know, how you keep your sort of sanity, basically, as a pro rider. And so you've got to have a balance outside of racing because... It can turn on a second, on one slip, and this just underlines that, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah. I mean, we know with cycling, isn't it? You just don't know what's around the corner sometimes, and I think that's the sometimes the beauty of this sport, isn't it? You know, it it is a journey you go on from the start to finish, certainly a three-week race, and you just just can never relax, you know? That's, That's the thing, and not saying the lads were relaxed at all. It was on a descent, wasn't it? And like I said, it just looked such a simple fall, didn't it, you know? But there we go. And, and just finally, Rod, how confident were you that he had the physical level to, well, to compete right to the end of this Giro? Well, I think, you know, he's, he's proven that he's done it in the past. Um, you know, he's, read, he's ridden several uh, Grand Tour races and sort of always been fairly level through all of them. You know, he, you know, even if he wasn't sort of the main guy in the team, he's always stayed fairly re- level. So you would think, you know, facts tell you that he would 
hold good form um, and up until this day you couldn't have faulted his, his everything really his approach every day everything that he's doing the, the way he's talking on the bus um, the way him and G are working together was really you know I think two British riders you know was was something quite special for us so you know that's I think that's what's quite disappointing now for for that but you know fair play to G he's he's you know he's, he's a bit of a star isn't he in his own right and I think he's uh, you know the lads will all get behind him now it's all for G yeah Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, Cycling Podcast Team Car, the back of the pack, please. Many of you out there will know that the Cycling Podcast partnered with the Melbourne-based clothing company MAP last year to create the fantastic Cycling Podcast jersey. I'm taking probably a bit much credit there because we didn't come up with the design, nor did we make the fantastic jerseys themselves. But we did provide the inspiration by setting the brief. And that brief was for MAPS designers to imagine that the cycling podcast was a professional cycling team. What would we have worn through the years? And there was a vote last year during the Tour de France, and the winning design was very much reminiscent of the late 80s in both typography styling and color schemes the jersey is still available now at map.cc and there's a range of other items to go with it some bib shorts that will match very well there's also a casquette some socks and a bidon so you can find the cycling podcast range at map.cc that's m-a-a-p.cc They've also recently launched their Alt Road collection, which is designed for cyclists who want to get off the beaten track a bit. In fact, MAP are encouraging people to stretch their horizons a little bit. Maybe you've got a multi-day ride in mind. The Alt Road collection is designed to be durable on the bike, comfortable on the bike, but also versatile enough to wear uh, when you're off the bike, if you're perhaps stopping somewhere and having a look round. So go to map.cc to check out the Alt Road collection as well. And it's worth mentioning, while the Giro is on, that the amount of recycled material, Italian-made recycled nylon, in the MAP clothing, particularly the Evade range, is up to 70%. And uh, that is part of MAP's mission statement, to make their clothing desirable but also sustainable. We're delighted to be partnered with MAP. If you want to check out their entire range, go to map.cc. Um, yeah, I think I've been, you know, fighting the last couple of years with a lot of setbacks and um, and not finding my, my level professionally and not kind of feeling 100% um, in the races and, and feeling like I was where I should be. And, and meanwhile, been, you know, some of the happy moments of my life in those years personally and um and finding a lot of um amazing people and and yeah an amazing partner and and a lot of happiness so I think that speaks for itself really that um I would always say that any athlete needs to you know to have uh, validation away from their sport because there's so many uncontrollables within sport and especially cycling more than any we were just talking about it at lunch actually about um you know the dangers that we face on a on a daily basis um and the only sport that we could really draw comparison to was something like the isle of man tt on on motorbikes where you know the 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 rate at which the the guys don't even come home is is pretty frightening um so i think when you're 
I've always believed that to make it as a cyclist, you have to be really used to things not going your way, even if that's when you were 15, 16 years old that you punctured in a race or, mm. yeah, of course, crashes, but but also bad days and, and all the rest of it. And I think that in order to then be happy within this sport, you have to be able to find, you know, an ability to to remove yourself from from that and and to continue to be a normal functioning person otherwise i don't personally i don't really see how that's sustainable i think if you can't um be happy irregardless of of how it's gone then uh it's going to be hard to enjoy the sport because many times it is out of your hand um and that's the, the nature of the the beast really well, Brian, I think most of our listeners will have recognised that voice. That was Theo Gagenhart's voice, and that was him speaking to Lionel and me on Monday. On the rest day, we released our Kilometre Zero yesterday, and it was entitled Theo in the Hunt, because he was in the hunt to win the Giro d'Italia. And, well, that was an answer he gave to me when I asked him, what comes first, happiness or success? Basically, that was the question. And he gave a very thoughtful answer, which now, with hindsight, also becomes a very poignant answer, because, well, he found himself, he finds himself tonight in precisely the situation, the position that he was describing there, um, of having had his dreams for this race and everything he's worked for for several months um jeopardized in the blink of an eye yeah i mean the life contact of any the life context story of any athlete is is relevant for for them you know for their life for their personal happiness but once they're in a race uh those things i wouldn't say they disappear but they are so focused and they concentrate on the job at hand so i think the it's 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 really great that he has that perspective and he's he's definitely going to need it because this must be such a huge blow for him you i mean he was i think he was potentially even stronger than when he won the giro and i'm saying that because he measured up against somewhat stronger riders than in 2020 mm -hmm. the the covid version he was especially I was so impressed with him after the time trial so he's going to need that perspective now more than ever probably yes brian and well unfortunately this jeopardy lies in wait, not only in cycling, but in every sport. And that's one of the things that makes sport compelling, that things can change, as I said earlier, in the blink of an eye. And there's been a lot of talk, particularly on social media in the last couple of days, about this Giro turning into a farce. But these are the vagaries, these are the vicissitudes, these are the permutations that ultimately, I mean, no one wants to see riders crash out, but... They're, they're, they are part of the drama of these, particularly these long-form narratives that are grand tour races and it make this is what makes them so hard to win yeah i mean also if you would if you wanted to maintain the perspective that that it, this is a farcical giro would that then mean that you loved the one last year where, where nothing much happened of either sorts before the second last stage to marmolada i think we just i mean i, I can only speak for myself but a, a grand tour race is this the manuscript can be torn apart at any given time. This, I mean, it's it's not a computer game. It's not something that we, you know, we, it, it always ends up how we would imagine it. And there's there's lies a lot of beauty in that, but there also there's some rather gruesome events in between. So yeah, it it, it always it stings me really hard to see any rider crash and crash out of of a bike race they're prepared for. And yes, we just have to keep our fingers crossed that everyone's okay after today. And Brian Teo's crash was unfortunately the prelude and the subject of much of what I talked about with Lionel Burney in our 
pausa cappuccino dopo le 11 today. It's past 11, time for my cappuccino break. La pausa cappuccino con Lionel Bernie dopo le 11. Pronto! Hello Daniel. Hello Lionel. Hello. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Slight sense of disappointment that the race has uh, lost another potential podium finisher, another potential winner, Teo Gagan Hart, 2020 champion. Yeah, and we've just heard there. Well, yeah, and um, we're well, we're doing our call, aren't we? Um, shortly after lunchtime, well, a couple of hours after the cappuccino curfew, and I think we've both well, we've both just watched the drama unfold, and I suppose lent a bit of extra poignancy for us having done that interview with Teo a couple of days ago and well and, and heard him reflecting as we did just then on how precarious his existence and every pro cyclist's existence is and moments earlier moments before that crash he was in one of the best positions he's ever been in in his career in a grand tour and everything just seemed to be going perfectly and you know we asked him in well we talked to him in the interview didn't we about how consistent his season's been how he's finished well in every race and then gets to the big objective and all the sacrifices are jeopardized yeah it is a a a real shame for Gagan Hart and well let's not forget as we speak they still have the pink jersey on the shoulders of Geraint Thomas it's not as if Ineos Grenadiers objectives are completely dashed uh, but I mean I suppose the last couple of days have been pretty extraordinary in terms of the number of abandons I think as we stand today 10 more riders out at the, as we stand at the moment you know there might be some more that don't make it to the finish of course Covid and the bad weather combining uh, we've talked yesterday about the attrition rate in this Giro it's unusual for recent years uh, the most Abandons in the Giro, well, the fewest finishers in the Giro in recent years was, is 133. That was in 2020, perhaps not surprisingly, because that was the COVID season and, uh, you know, riders were pressed into action, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, not fully Grand Tour ready at that time of year. We are down, I think, to 140 at the moment in this Giro but of course it's only the halfway mark in the race and you have to go back 20 years to 2003 to find a Giro where you know significantly more riders didn't make it to the finish there were only 96 finishes in 2003 and that was largely because of two of the mountainous stages the one to Alpe Pompiago stage 14 that was there were 13 abandons or non-starters and then stage 18 to Chionale in Piedmont, not far from where you are heading today, Daniel. There were Indeed. 35 riders outside the time limit and a further six who didn't finish. Very cold and wet conditions that day. I mean, the organisers choosing on that occasion not to waive the time limit rule and, and let riders back in because they do have that um, discretionary power, don't they, to waive the time cut if it's a significant number of riders that are outside it 35 a large number and that meant that there are only 96 finishes so a fair way to go before uh, this year's Giro compares to that but it's not without precedent this the Giro uh, all the Grand Tours really you know the, there have been years when there have been these kind of freakish uh, they're not on their own freak conditions are they but they all seem to be colliding no. Uh, here at this this year yeah. the crashes the the bad weather the illness that's rampaging through the peloton all combining 
Yeah. And and while there is a, a scramble to apportion blame, there isn't an obvious culprit that I can see at this stage in the race. I mean, when we get to the big mountains later in the race, if we indeed get over the big mountains, uh, there will be, well, there's the possibility of cancellations, stages being shortened, and then the narrative will be a familiar one about whether it's sensible to even attempt to take on those mountains in May, and then there might be talk about date changes or whether it would be wise to change the dates of the Giro. I believe I was speaking to our good friend Luca Giallanella from the Giro d'Italia, who was looking quite nervous and furtive in the press room today, lest Patrick Lefebvre pay us another visit. Um, but he was talking about the fact that that next year's Giro will move back or they are they're hopeful that it will move back a week um, because there's a public holiday in Italy on June the 2nd which falls on a Sunday and they want that to be the last day of the 2024 Giro but um, but and thus far the weather has been really the only the only thing that you can blame Covid measures I think well they've been relaxed everywhere it's not unique to the Giro d'Italia that COVID measures have been relaxed. Uh, I know there were some teams, some teams have been pretty upset, for example, with the conditions in which riders were interviewed after the team presentation in Pescara way back a week ago last Thursday. Um, they were in a tiny room answering questions and that wasn't ideal. And then there was the issue of the cable cars two or three days ago. But I don't think anyone's seriously suggesting that those two circumstances have accounted for a majority of these DNFs. Interesting, and I mean, this is something that over time we will get a clearer picture of the the kind of the climate shift. Um, you know, is clearly a factor. I mean, persistent days of rain is is not necessarily uh, you know particularly unusual. It just coincides with the race this year. It could just as easily be glorious sunshine, um, and it will require a bit more of a sort of helicopter vision and a a bit more data to. Um, you know, to ascertain whether this is going to be something that a sport like professional cycling is going to have to contend with, whether it's, um, you know, extreme heat or prolonged periods of, of bad weather. Over uh, the next 10, 15 years, that picture will become a lot clearer. Uh, I know certainly I've spoken to climate scientists who say that these extremes are going to become more um, well, they're going to become more common. Uh, so, weather that sets in for longer periods of time you know well we've seen the extreme flooding in Reggio Emilia as well haven't we and uh, so yeah it, it's something that a sport like cycling is going to have to contend with perhaps. Lionel on a brighter and maybe final note uh, this evening uh, we will have the Baron and I will have the good fortune to be staying in a place which I know two or three years ago you particularly enjoyed we're staying in Barbaresco in the same um, little bread and breakfast slash Ooh. restaurant the Ristorante Rabaya where you and I had a lovely meal and I've got a, lo- a lovely picture of you Lionel enjoying a bottle of Barbaresco from three or four years ago so don't worry um, the, the Baron will be well he'll be led to dinner he'll be led to the dinner table in handcuffs um, lest he get his hands on the wine list. <laughs> oh, well, Daniel, enjoy this evening's dinner. Uh, you know, let the Baron off the leash a bit, because that was a very special place, so make, make the most of it. <laughs> Brian, we've gone from last night hailing Ineos Grenadiers and the position they were in with five riders. It was five riders in the top ten, wasn't it? Yes. They've lost two today. Yeah. And that shows how fickle this Giro d'Italia, well, any 
Grand Tour is, but particularly they lost two. They lost two from the general classification oh, from sense. the yeah. top ten, the yeah. general classification today. Um, that underlines how fickle any Grand Tour is, but particularly one as exposed to as much adversity that's being thrown at them from the weather, particularly yeah. um, as this one. One thing that's that's still quite impressive um, for Team Ineos is that they still have Terman Aronsman and Laurent de Plus in the top 10 on 8th and ninth position and it, it just goes to show how much of a force they they would have been had Gegenhardt still been in the race but also still in my opinion let's see how, how badly Bruce Sivakov is but those two riders are extremely versatile and strong for the rain, remainder of the, the race I would contend though that the presumed advantage of in number, power in numbers has gone it's been obliterated because Aronsman has no experience uh, of challenging for Grand Tours no, I'm, and Laurence de Plus Laurence de Plus doesn't either so no, I think but I'm, I'm, I probably have to explain myself better than it I just the physical level at this point yeah. of the race is extremely high I'm not saying that they could they could play those cards and strategically but they certainly have they certainly have riders who can pull for the jersey. But that, I, I would say that, that would have been, well, it certainly was the case with Teo Gegenhart. He was an alternative. He was a guy who, if he went down the road, then oh, none of those anymore, would have to react. Agree. And even Sivakov. Sivakov's a guy with. You spoke to him about it. Too, yeah, top 10 pedigree in major tours. And even if he hadn't gone into this Giro with personal objectives to, to do well on general classification, um, he could have been used that way, particularly with Teo now absent. I know this is, this is obviously academic but imagine if Remco had stayed in the race and those I didn't talk I didn't say that initially but you know four riders from Quickstep Sudal are out imagine if Remco was still here in the leaders jersey after the time trial and then those uh, COVID pos positives had had to go, go home I mean then I could potentially start to see the farcical part of uh, of the race, it would, it's still a bike race, it's still a Giro. There's still a lot of you know extremely hard stages and interesting perspectives and to as race. As Lionel said, relatively speaking, okay, it feels as though there has been a bit of a, a sort of seismic exodus of riders over the last couple of days. But in, in the context of Grand Tours, 34, I think, it's 34 riders that have gone up until this point is not that extraordinary. It's not that exceptional. And Brian, we should talk now about the sprint finish. Um, we touched on it briefly. And, well, we heard earlier me asking Ryan Gibbons about Pascal Ackerman, and his, his career has taken on a strange trajectory over the last three or four years because there was a stage, particularly when he was winning those two Giro stages in 2019, he won in Fucecchio and Terracina, where he looked poised. There were, I mean, over the last few years, we've often speculated about, speculated about who is going to be the next man to claim the undisputed crown of the sprint king of the peloton and Ackerman at one stage looked as though he might well do it and then he lost momentum um, he won two stages of the world in 2022 um, but he he's looked very fit a lot of the time he's looked very strong he's also been out with injury I believe yeah he has and he's had some setbacks but um, it was good to see him it was good to see him back on the top step of the podium today. I mean, just underlining what I said about him, seeming to have lost his mojo. I mean, I was on the Vuelta España last year, the last stage where he was supposed to win. That's right, yeah. He was supposed that. to win. And his teammate, his lead man, I think lead a lot of man, uh, Sebastian, TV commentators got that wrong. Yeah, Sebas Molano won. Yeah. Yeah, it, you almost forgotten that he changed to UAE because they have so much else going for them. Mm. And was, uh, it's a brave move also. Mm. In a team that that you wouldn't really think that they would they would 
focus that much on a sprinter and when um, in the interview you also hear that this is the first day that he was able to get that delivery that he that he then won out of Brian you were in his press conference he's a very exuberant ebullient chap isn't he yeah what a what a smile he has like just I mean anyone who wins the stage in, in the grounds who has a smile but he was he was quite radiant he was he was very happy and then Definitely also a sense of relief. He has great memories here at the Giro already, but now that he's, he, he, I mean, those were some serious sprinters he beat today for it. Mm. In a very sort of drag race s- style of sprint, you know, with especially with Mass Peterson and Cavendish on his wheel, and he, he just came in his own trajectory on the other side. Well, and then you had, like, sorry, you had Jonathan Meelan in his own, like, it looks like. Uh, if you put a, 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 a jersey on one of the bulls in the, in Pamplona, storming down the streets, that's more or less his stylistic impression, isn't it? He looks like a sort of thrashing mas- machine being controlled by some malevolent AI somewhere. <laughs> I don't know where. Um, Brian, we'll talk a bit more about Mark Cavendish um, a little bit later. But did I hear Pascal Ackerman also talk about the fact, is his family here? Yeah. And he said they're dropping yeah. on the race three times and he yeah. wasn't sure when they were going to drop exactly. in. But they were actually there today. Yeah, they were They're improvising it, apparently a bit of a trip uh, here in Italy. And uh, as, as he said, and you and I would probably agree with him, that you can really go anywhere here and you can you can have a good meal and and meet friendly people. So it's more or less what's this place called Dal Bafo. The Dal Bafo means at the home of the moustache. Yeah. Um, even at Dal Bafo kebab shop outside the hospital in Tortona, you can have a... Nothing a, but friendly faces. <laughs> nothing but friendly faces. And a passable. We had a, a portion of chips. Um, and it was, it was perfectly fine, wasn't it? It was. It was three stars on TripAdvisor. Um, yeah, I'll leave that to you later, Brian. That's part of your admin. That's one of your admin responsibilities to well, leave reviews for you the actually, eateries. You're taking care of dinner tonight, but we'll get to that. The Cycling Podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport, our long-term supporters. They've been with us since the Giro d'Italia in 2016 and their sponsorship is enabling Daniel and Brian to be out there in Italy. Uh, They've been enjoying the feed zone every night. But what about the riders? The feed zone can be quite a dangerous part of the race. They have to grab their musettes or their feed bag and sometimes they have to grab more than one if they're getting one for a teammate as well. So what's Pavel Sivakov thinking when he is approaching the feed zone? always try to grab and feedback but if the stage is short i also try to avoid just have enough food in the buckets or picking some food from the extra feeds we have we're quite lucky with the team with that so sometimes the feed zone is not even necessary to be honest we, we've got so many feeds around like so many staff standing standing on the climbs throughout the stage so yeah we're quite lucky for the, with this but yeah, I think making the feed zone longer is actually a good thing. You can just spread it out more. But when the race is full on, it's still still the same problem, to be honest. Like everyone wants to be in front, it's just full gas. And sometimes the worst actually... Scienceinsport.com is where you need to go to get everything for your ride. You can get the Go Isotonic Energy Gels, fast energy, endurance sports nutrition that's scientifically proven to help you go further and faster for longer. Well, Brian, I was riding flying solo in Camayore this morning. I gave you a few, a few extra hours of quality time with the family. Well, a couple of extra hours, maybe one extra hour. And um, there, was, there was still a lot of 
tales of woe and misery from yesterday and it was raining again of course it's the 2023 Giro always rains <laughs> um, in Camayore this morning and well we heard a few last night didn't we Alberto Dainese uh, well, I, I heard well, we heard from Matt Winston talking about how he'd had to hug Dainese for two minutes and uh, Dainese said it was the it was the worst few minutes of his life not because Matt Winston was hugging him but because of how cold he was a lot of riders saying that it was the coldest they'd ever been on a bike Jay Vine said he literally froze um, on the bike yesterday couldn't steer and of course also in yesterday's podcast we heard from the Motown maestro lucky Larry Warbass of Agé Dezel Citroën our friend our sort of diarist on this Giro d'Italia and I caught up again with Larry this morning in Camayore so here's today's installment of Laranzando Laranzando a postcard from Italy with Larry Warbass. Oh, good, good, good. Um, how are we feeling this morning? Yeah, I feel fine. Uh, I mean, at least the raindrops are not falling at the moment. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's a win. Um, Larry, tell us about, well, you posted last night on Instagram. We were actually talking about it. Uh, an inspirational video from a gentleman called David Goggins. Um, a lot of the listeners are probably familiar with David Goggins. He's a former Navy SEAL and he's developed a huge following um, because of his fairly, well, he's fairly uncompromising, isn't he? With regards to himself and pain and physical activity. And, and you're a bit of a fan as well. Yeah, big fan, big fan. So David Goggins helped me get through the stage yesterday, you know. No, uh, <clears throat> I, uh, you know, <clears throat> actually I like got his book like many years ago, but I didn't really... I started it and I stopped pretty quick and then last year I uh, I read it again and uh, yeah then I was just like I love David Goggins so uh, yeah he's a he's a hard man so uh, I thought uh, David Goggins would have loved those conditions out there yesterday so I thought okay well you know I better channel my inner Goggins uh, to get through. <laughs> All right everybody you see me smiling why? Because it kind of sucks out here in New York City. They're expecting some big blizzard to come in, so I was kind of praying to the uh, snow gods for worse weather to come in, because why in worse weather, we get better. Um, I'm kind of happy, but I was hoping it'd be a lot worse. I'm gonna do a nice little run today, and no, I'm not thinking it's warm and 70. I like to live in reality. It sucks. It's about seven inches of snow, and I'm extremely ecstatic right now. Honestly, do you think about things like that on a day like yesterday? Oh, you have to. I mean, like a day like yesterday, you have to coach yourself through the whole way, you know? I mean, <clears throat> you get to these points where yeah, you're in this, like, dark tunnel and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to get to the other side, you know? But then all of a sudden, 30 minutes later, you're totally fine. So it's really just about these, like, I mean, I guess that's all of cycling. <clears throat> you know, when you're suffering really hard, like up a climb or something, it's like you have to get it in your head that it's it's a short-term short-term pain right and uh and yeah you'll make it to the other side so sometimes a lot of cycling is just trying to coach yourself through those hard moments i mean i said on the podcast last night that you know this is becoming more and more common for sort of weekend warriors to do these you know ultra endurance events and we get you know our our friends know our families know our extended family and we get you know a million messages of congratulations for you, there are no laurels. It's just expected. You get back to the bus and, you know, you might get a pat on the back. That's about it. Yeah, I wanted more pats on the back yesterday, but I didn't get them. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's just what's expected of us. And then everyone says, yeah, but, you know, you're lucky to be a pro. So, <clears throat> you know, I'm sure if we ended up not racing yesterday, we would have taken a lot of heat. And, uh, 
you know, it's just funny because like you don't win on one side, but you definitely lose on the other side. So <clears throat> I guess that's how it goes. I guess that's what we signed up for. As the Italians say, you wanted the bike, now pedal. Yeah, 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 exactly. Although, yesterday I thought, you know, it was kind of funny when the organizers were, uh, you know, trying to say, ah, oh, you know, it's not dangerous, whatever. I thought, maybe next time, before they make a decision, they should be driving in a convertible, whole race. That way, we're all in the same playing field, you know? But, uh, but yeah. Well, Brian, I don't know about you, but I always, when I think of Larry, I always think of Joe Dombrowski. They're a bit of a comic, um, they're an iconic comic double act, aren't they? Not only comic, we shouldn't say that. It's you know, a serious matter. Yes, they, these are serious matters, and we do take everything they say and everything they do as bike riders very seriously. I also spoke to Joe, though, this morning. We haven't caught up with him for a while. Joe, of course, riding for Astana here, who well, they had Mark Cavendish in the sprint today, sprinting very well. We'll talk about that in a minute. But just on Cavendish... Joe Dombrowski is finding himself moonlighting to a certain extent as a sort of auxiliary, as a helper, as a domestique sometimes to Cavendish. Unjolly, as they would say. Um, yes. Unjolly, and it's a little bit of a culture shock for him. Um, let's listen to what he said to me this morning about precisely that and how he's feeling generally. Yeah, actually, you know, the first, well, not the first sprint day, but one of the early sprint days, there was a point where he uh, was getting dropped a bit and I saw other guys around him and I wasn't sure what to do, so I just continued. And to be honest, I've never actually really ridden for a sprinter before. And then after the race, you know, some of the other guys were like, Joe, what are you doing? Like, wait. And so I went to the room with Cav and I was like, hey, sorry, I, you know, I didn't mean to make confusion, but like, I, it's, it's not that I don't want to wait, it's just I wasn't sure what to do. So yesterday, just any time that he was struggling on the climbs, I would wait with him. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's not that I can really contribute to the lead out, but, um, you know, also I think when you're a sprinter, when they start to go fast on the climbs, if you have some guys there that can help get you there, that, that's because that's all I really can offer to a sprinter, to be honest. What, what are you guys thinking about today that it might be an opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I think we hope that it's a breakaway of just a few guys and it's not too much to control and we can sprint because uh, actually I think Cav is, is going pretty good and it um, would be nice to get a stage win. And you said you, you're not feeling very well, Joe. Um, is it the kind of thing that you expect to get better, you expect to get over it? Uh, hoping so, just... I mean, I was I was not positive for COVID. I just have had like uh, vomiting and stomach issues for a few days. So my hope is that I can kind of recover this week and then come good for those mountain stages in the last week. Um, but we'll see. I mean, it hasn't really been particularly pleasant, but uh, yeah, that's how it goes. On on the on the misery scale, one to a hundred. What was yesterday? 112. I I don't remember. I told my wife I don't think I remember ever being so cold. I mean, I got to the bottom of the descent and like, it was hard to even go around the corner because the I was shaking so much. It's like, yeah, I mean, it was, I didn't enjoy any of it. <laughs> so Brian, I didn't see Joe. He wasn't, he wasn't at the pointy end in the sprint finish today, but you wouldn't expect him to be. No. Um, but Mark Cavendish certainly was and had he launched his sprint just a little bit later I must say the camera angle moved when he launched his sprint and it was almost side on and when I saw the way he accelerated and having seen Gaviria won on the same finish line five years ago I think it was five years ago 
knowing that it was downhill, I thought he's got this, he's going to win this. But it proved to be, I don't know, maybe 50 meters, oh, 30 meters too early. Yeah, you can also say the same for Jonathan Milan, yes. to, be, to be fair. But it was, it was really impressive by Cavendish. He also uh, he used his uh, ability to place himself really well, even without a, that much of a help from his team. That was quite a reduced sprint anyways. But how he basically tracked Matt Peterson when because he's known for opening a long sprint and he most certainly did against the day. It was I think it, uh, how Cavendish is able to really find the right wheel and also take those risks quite late in his career. I think that's probably the most impressive thing. I mean he's crashed numerous times in this Giro. Bruce and battered he must be and he he was almost with a with a shooting with a winning chance yesterday had you know hadn't they been caught he lining off for a sprint on roads that he knew pretty well himself having lived in Tuscany for a long time so yeah it's very impressive I'm, I'm always I'm, it's almost like crazy to think of how many years Cavendish mm. has actually been able to contest the sprint it's uh, it's quite quite unlike anyone I think what's really really encouraging in this Giro d'Italia is that the direction of travel is positive for him he's, look, he's been getting closer and closer True. and if he was out of his depth then it would be he would be going in the other direction, and I think it bodes pretty well for the Tour de France. Um, he's got a difficult start to the Tour de France, a really difficult start. Yeah. It's not going to begin with routine sprint finishes. It might be the fourth day before he gets one of those. So that's one thing that he's going to have to work out, and his team are going to have to work out the program between now and then. He's also up in the air. But, you know, I spoke to him a few weeks ago about how he was finding things in sprint finishes, and he said that he was managing to get in position, but he was finding that he was so... He was he was struggling so much at that point that he couldn't really accelerate. And I thought there was definitely an accelerant. There was a significant acceleration today. So he was getting fitter and fitter, and the team... Well, there weren't too many Astana jerseys um, in that group. I don't think there were any other. There were a couple of Aeolos that looked like Astana jerseys. But um, I think they've shown signs as well that they're getting used to him a little bit. So I was suspect... Was there a lot of talk about that, you know, when he's changed to Astana? Like yeah. There was a who's going to do the lead out of it. Yeah. Will they be able to <coughs> to bring someone to help yeah. him out? I suspect that he might leave the Giro d'Italia. I don't have any information on that. I don't have any intel. But I suspect that he might leave it in the next couple of days. But if he does, although he hasn't taken a stage win, I would imagine that he would consider the experience relatively positive. Um, Brian, let's talk about tomorrow's stage, shall we? And yesterday's dinner. La tappa di domani e la cena di ieri. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's dinner. Brian, yesterday's dinner solo. I uh, didn't see you after. I did. I did. Uh, I did point you to uh, one of my local favourites in Pietra Santa. You packed me off to a place called Betty's, not to be confused with the tea room in Harrogate. No, um, not at all, actually. No, it was. It was good. It was, I had papal pomodoro, which is a, a Tuscan bread salad, sort of bread kind of saturated in tomato juice. Exactly. It's a. It's one of my favorite Tuscan dishes. And then I had some ravioli and I had just one glass of a single solitary glass of red wine last night, Brian. And, um, and I had yeah. nothing. And you had nothing. You <laughs> had some fette biscottate, I think. <laughs> Pure meno, yeah. I, uh, I've, I've came back too late to, to, um, to have uh, my 
dinner with my family. Would you I, like? A, would you like a kebab? Should I go in? No. Just like dip back into side dal bafo <laughs> and get you. Like, That's okay. What have we got here piatto doner kebab eight euros. It's quite you actually. That, yeah, that. this could. We might as well be in Copenhagen. You can find <laughs> these everywhere in my home I country. Of course, I live in the home of the doner. You do actually. Yeah. Berlin. So, anyways, back on track with the. Uh, yeah, I do. I um. I didn't really have any dinner worth mentioning, but I did polish off, and there's a connection here. I did polish off the last part of the bottle that you and I opened uh, the other night, which was a Barbaresco from the Vineyard Rabaja. Is, and, is the, uh, oh, okay. and that's exactly which is where we're staying tonight. That's where we're staying tonight. Yeah, so I was. Uh, I did my duty to do my research for the cycling podcast, and then, yeah, very happy to be able to stay home a little bit this morning and send my family or my daughters to kindergarten. Excellent, Brian. What have we got tomorrow? Back to business, yeah. So tomorrow, stage 12 of the Giro d'Italia, 179 kilometers, relatively short stage for this Giro, uh, from uh, from Bra to Rivoli in Piemonte, a fairly straightforward stage, uh, if you just had a quick glance, but we don't do that here in the second podcast. So because after the race passes the finish line the first time with 53 kilometers to go, the race heads west and tackles the 9.8 kilometer climb to Colabraida. And it's a hard and uneven climb with 7.1% average uh, gradient. And after the descent, there's less than 20 kilometers to the finish with a rather tricky run-in. So I suspect, if I may just take on that analysis right now, it could be breakaway, but either way, there'll be a race in the race because there is no way that that finish is it screams for roglification. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all, uh, that's uh, basically, co- might as well be called Cole Primos. So uh, I, I think we we'll, might see breakaway, and I think we might see some GC shakeups. Not not major changes, but there will be. I think they'll 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 test each other on that one. It, do you know what? It reminds me very much just looking at the profile of the stage. I forget the name of the town where we finished, but it was on the coast in Andalusia in the Giro in the Vuelta a couple of years ago, when Primoz Roglic attacked solo over the top of the climb and crashed on the descent and that was where he coined his sort of now famous dictum no what was it no risk no glory um it, it looks quite similar to that to me i think he we might see him move tomorrow yeah but also something that we need to keep in mind the forecast is not particularly pleasant either so it i think that's something that some of the riders at least uh, will start to have well definitely will have in their minds when they but they consider their tactics for the for the pointy end of the pointy end of the race. Brian, we're leaving from Bra. It's the wine stage, Daniel. It is. Is it the wine stage tomorrow? Yeah, there is no. From my understanding, and I should know, there is no wine stage. But I mean, when you just look at the the towns of the first, say, forty kilometers almost. We're we're in uh, La Mora. We're going La Mora, Barolo, Monforte d'Alba, oh, wow. okay. Rodino. I mean, if that's not the wine stage, then then what would be? Yes, we're heading through Montelupo Albese. I went on holiday there for two years, three years, Alba, the last couple of years. And um, Matteo Sobrero, the J.K. Lula rider, who is not here at the Giro d'Italia, he or his family have a cantina, have a, a winery in, I think it's in Montelupo. And well, the, the name on the labels is Giorgio Sobrero. They make a nice uh, dolcetto and nebbiolo. Brian, but Bra is a culinary, I seem to remember that Bra is a culinary capital. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's home to several local dishes, I believe. But one of them is uh, Plin, which yes, is the local pasta to to, um, to here, and with the salsiccia of Bra. Hmm. And uh, yes, one, I mean it's it, it's quite wholesome food in this part of Italy, and it makes a lot of sense that you would pair it with Barbero and Nebbiolo to you know to have a little bit of 
acidic and tannic background to some of those heavier dishes. Brian, in a food chat, um, let's talk about let's talk about ornithology birds for a moment, shall we? Um, let's conclude the episode with something completely different. Let's talk about Derek G. We called him yesterday one of the revelation, revelations of the Giro, and that was after his second near miss. Uh, the Canadian rider rides for Israel Premier Tech. This is his first Grand Tour. He's finished second twice now. He finished second in Viareggio, as I said yesterday, having been away in a, in a breakaway for 184 kilometers in Fossombrone. He was away for 197 kilometers, and among other things that have struck everyone about Derek G is one of his self-proclaimed pastimes. Um, he's a twitcher, he's a bird watcher. I thought I'd catch up with him this morning. Brian, we need a nickname for Derek G. And I, well, you're gonna hear me in the interview threaten that we're gonna come up with some sort of bird-related nickname. I was looking at the, he's from Ottawa. I was looking at the birds native to Ottawa or particularly common in Ottawa um, earlier and I couldn't really come up with anything um, I've, I've just um, I just uh, reminded myself, and this is by heart, of a of a of a poem of some song lines. Can I just Go recite on. them? Banish all dismay, extinguish every sorrow. If I'm lost or I'm forgiven, the birds will still be singing. Oh wow! There is um, Elvis Costello and the Juliet Letters. Derek, I hope you're listening. Um, that was that was wonderful, Brian. Thank Talking you. of songs. Um, someone, one of our loyal listeners, suggested to me on Twitter that we should, I don't know, announce why. The, the, the listener didn't know that we were about to have an interview with Derek G, but he said he should be sort of introduced with um, Paul McCartney. Let it, was it Paul McCartney, Let It Be? Yeah, but Derek G. To the, to the, Derek G to the tune of Let It Be. I don't know if that can be arranged, Tom, our producer. Anyway, this is... A lot of colder money, like that. <laughs> anyway, the final item on today's rather motley agenda is the Chiacchierata del Giorno and it's with Derek G and Brian we will be back tomorrow won't we from Rivoli Buonasera Daniel Buonasera a tutti La Chiacchierata del Giorno The Teen Wag of the Day Well, Derek, I know you were pretty jubilant, understandably, after your first, second place. Were you? I mean, now that it's almost every day you're almost winning a stage, did you feel similar yesterday? At the finish line, for sure, no, just because, I mean, the first time Ben Healy was so far up the road, you know, that that, that win was gone. This one was was right there in front of me. But uh, looking back now, I mean, ah, what a what a class bike rider to lose to. So, uh, yeah, getting closer. Getting closer. And are you just blown away by how well this Giro is going? Because I, you know, I read a few interviews with you before this race, and you were sort of, well, you were thrilled to be here. It seemed, and that was that was enough for you just to be here. And you're turning into a real, well, influence on this race. Yeah, and, and I mean, at the end of the day, I'm still thrilled to be here. And and I mean, the goal was coming here was to help the team and and to survive. And I guess. I mean, I still haven't made it to Rome yet, so that's still uh, that's still for sure a big goal. But yeah, to be able to to be up there and and fighting for stages was kind of beyond my my wildest expectations. So I'm I'm a, yeah I'm thrilled with that. What have you discovered about Grand Tour racing that you didn't know or couldn't have imagined before starting? I mean, we're almost halfway through now, and I can't remember a time I wasn't racing this honestly. And there's so far still to go, so. Uh, 
Yeah, it's been it's been really great rooming with uh, with Simon Clark here, and he's really he's really talked me through kind of how to how to tackle it day by day and and just keep going. So I mean, the dynamic is completely different to any any other racing that I've done. So it's just learning every day. And just getting into brakes is a feat in itself. I mean, are you? Is there a sort of system? Different riders have sort of different systems. They identify spots on the course. They identify certain riders to follow. What's your kind of modus operandi for getting into a brake? <laughs> I don't want to say the last two times have been lucky, but I'm sure that plays a role in almost every every brake that makes it. Just getting in the right the right move is is luck a lot of the time. So. Uh, I've been lucky that the two times have been quite hard starts, and uh, and my legs are there, so so that helps a lot. Um, I don't know that on kind of a more tactical breakaway day I have that uh, that that nuance yet to get there, but uh, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> and, and just last couple of things, Derek. Um, people have latched onto this ornithology, the bird watching, because we do that grand tours. <laughs> We're here every morning. We have to come up with new stories. Um, has it been blown out of proportion a little bit? Are you really as passionate a bird watcher as Italian TV, for example, is making out? Uh, for sure not not that uh, passionate. I started it just in, in 2019 as a, as a very low energy pastime. Um, and it really fluctuates based off of how much I'm training. How much time do you, are you dedicating deep at home? How often do you do it? Oh, it's super, it's super passive, honestly. If I'm just out riding, I, I keep a list of every species I've seen this year, and uh, that's about as intense as it gets. But luckily, I've been racing all over the world, so I've had uh, I've had quite a few good uh, bird watching opportunities. I bet there are some good apps now that can help you with that. Are there apps where you you know you take a picture of a bird and it will tell you what it is immediately? Yeah, it's unbelievable. The database is out there. I mean, some people are. <laughs> Are really, really into it, you know, to a level I can't, uh, I can't fathom. So, yeah, it's uh, there's a lot for sure. The ceiling is, I'm pretty far from the ceiling of what what a hardcore birder is. Great. So you know that a nickname is on its way. You're, you're bound to get a bird-related nickname at some point in the next few days, especially if you win a stage. <laughs> well, I mean, we'll see. Uh, we'll see if the legs have it in me to to get up the road again. But uh, yeah. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burnett.